this podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Thursday, March 7th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Manafort sentenced. Cohen sues. So let's get a stormy update. NPR tells the tale. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep with regrets to Stormy, Stormy the cat. She lives in Homer, Alaska, and for more than six years occupied the Fritz Creek General Store. The black cat is described as slightly overweight, which may be related to her downfall. Officials say Stormy's presence violates food safety standards. There is no Alaska word for bodega, I guess. Cats aren't upstanding enough for an Alaskan general store. Have you seen track palin, people? Do most sockeye fishermen assiduously lick themselves before casting bait? Don't answer. Let us move on to another stormy. Remember, remember this feller from the Cohen hearings? You express wonderment that your predicament could possibly get you on television. It certainly got you on television today, has it not, sir? Sir, I was on television representing Mr. Trump going back into 2011. Well, I didn't know who you were until today, really. Okay, he's not a stormy. He's Clay Higgins, a representative from Louisiana, and I guess he's not a big news buff. To get the full effect of Rep Higgins, you need to know what he was wearing. Tan vest, no jacket, just the tan vest, white shirt, and a red tie. And the effect was, uh, player coming in, table four. Check change hundred. I like the time when Representative Higgins yielded his time back to the pit boss. So here's some uh, Clay Higgins fun facts. Okay, these aren't fun at all. Once beat a suspect in handcuffs and then quit the police force before discipline could be imposed. And he got some measure of fame by making aggressive crime stopper videos. And then he'd get hired to play different police precincts and municipalities throughout the South to instruct them on policing techniques. Got into a little IRS trouble for that. And, uh, Bring me to this, because you're asking, wait, what's the stormy angle? That, 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 that is all kind of stormy. But this is from the Baton Rouge Advocate right around the time of the last election. Quote, here's the lead. Days before Saturday's balloting, the ex-wife of Clay Higgins released tape recordings in which the Republican candidate suggests winning the election for the congressional seat representing Acadiana is the best route for her to receive the more than $100,000 he admits owing in unpaid child support. It is a risk. Higgins is heard telling his ex-wife, Rosemary Stormy Rothgum Hambris, about his congressional bid. But everything is structured in our favor, and ours includes you. So there's Stormy. And as for other Stormy news, no, those are really two of the biggest Stormy stories in the news today. How about that? On the show today in the spiel, I find religion a little tedious. But first... Do you know Donald Trump lied 60 times at that CPAC conference? 60 times, they counted. So what I did, just out of curiosity, I went to PolitiFact, and I asked myself, I wonder how long it took for Barack Obama to accumulate 60 lies. I wanted to be pretty exacting. I rated the statements that he made that PolitiFact counted as both false and mostly false, because I don't want to be accused of taking it easy on the spiritual founder of Obamacism because I am an Obamacist, which is what people used to call centrists before I rebranded it as Obamacists. But here are the facts. How long did it take Barack Obama to utter 60 lies? Well, if you start from the very last lie that political fact had him saying as president, which was, if you look worldwide, the number of terrorist incidents have not substantially increased. That was a few months before he left office. 
and you go back, 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 back through the years, back, 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 live 59. Stories about his birth certificate drowned out media coverage of the Republican and White House budget plans the week of April 11th. PolitiFact said, no, that's mostly false. It was actually a different week. And here was lie 60. The president's proposed budget will help reduce the deficit by $400 billion over the next decade to the lowest level since Dwight Eisenhower. He got his facts wrong. He mangled some talking points. But let me tell you when that lie was uttered. It was uttered in February of 2011. It took five years and 11 months for Barack Obama to do what Donald Trump did in one speech. And we know that Donald Trump did it in one speech because of my next guest, He is Daniel Dale. He is the man who accounts for every lie that Donald Trump tells. I checked the number of 60. Yeah, seems to hold up. He really did lie 60 times. And there was Daniel Dale counting them all. And now Daniel Dale, the Washington bureau chief of the Toronto Star, is here. I swear, it's true. President Trump has been known to stretch the truth at times, well, the times when he's not lying, and there, keeping him honest is one man. Actually, it's a cadre of men and women, but I think there is one guy, a leading light from the North, who does it better than anyone. His name is Daniel Dale. He's the Washington bureau chief of the Toronto Star for some reason. I mean, the reason is he's Canadian, and he does the best fact checks on Donald Trump, and I wanted to get into them. He's been on our show in the past, but never with me. Hello, Daniel. Thanks for coming on. Hello. Thanks so much. That was so kind of you. Yes, absolutely. So the reason, what I think distinguishes you is a few things, but you seem not to be an automaton who has given himself over to, look, if it's a, if it's an untruth, I have to track it down. You have a system and some heuristics for what constitutes a checkable fact and a notable fact. And if I could start off by just you giving me your philosophy on what is the sort of statement uh, or assertion of truth that rises to the level of fact to be checked. Well, I try not to check it um, if it's a prediction, even if it's outlandish, you know, we will by next year create, you know, a million more. I don't know. You know, I I think you get in trouble when you do that. When it's an expression of opinion, I try not to, you know, to declare it true or false, even if it's an outlandish opinion. And if if there's some – basically I try to be as generous as as is reasonable – to, to Trump. And so if there's an interpretation of his comment where it's like, well, you know, most people would think this, this isn't true, but if you look at it this other way that some not crazy person might look at it, you know, it's not false. I, I just won't include that on my false claims list because I think, you know, people are looking for ways to undermine the whole project. And I think where we sometimes get in trouble is where we give Pinocchios or whatever to something that's not just objectively false. Are there instances where he said something that you strongly suspect might be not factual? You just can't track it down. You don't have the time. Or even if it turned out the things that he was saying weren't, strictly speaking, factual, it doesn't wind up on your list because for reasons of time or for reasons of um, there's a plausible argument on the other side? 
Yeah, there there are tons of those claims where it's like, okay, we all know that this isn't true, but I can't definitively say so. And a good example is all the times, and I've written about these separately for my fact checks, but all the times where he claims that a big, tough, crying steelworkers, coal miners, right, uh, right. business people, farmers have approached him, you know, back, it's always backstage in a private room uh, to thank him for saving the country. He said, he's told these stories like more than maybe 10 times, definitely more than seven times. Um, and one of them I could prove false because he said at this signing of an executive order, half of the people behind me were crying. And so there's a video of this. So I went to the video. No one was crying. But the other times he situates in these private settings where there's no witnesses. So it's like, I know that this is not happening every rally. Like, come on, we're not we're not dumb. The other day on this show, there was a press availability that he had and he had a couple Chinese officials there and he had all his trade negotiators and he told a story about how the ambassador to China, Terry Branstead, met Xi Jinping in he right, got the year right. wrong, and then he said it was 1985, and he knew right then that he was going to be the premier of China. And he also said, Mrs. Branstead says so. Now, I went back, Terry Branstead has told this story over and over again, never, ever said at the time I knew he was going to be premier. In fact, I found yep. quotes of him saying, who at the time could know that this guy was going to be the premier? But is that a fact? Is that... Is that a fact or something that you could call a lie? And that you did call a lie? No, that that's a very uh, astute observation because that's so I'm doing my fact check for this past week, and I looked at that, and I'm like, I don't think that's true. And I've looked for a source for that story, and I haven't, like you, I, I haven't seen Brandstad say that publicly. But um, I don't think that when I submit a request for comment to whoever it will be, I guess the, the State Department, uh, you know, who would supposedly forward it to him, I just don't think they'll respond. And that's a, that's a frequent problem with when Trump makes claims about his own officials, often they seem dubious, but his officials don't want to undermine him by saying, no, the president, you know, is making something up about me. And so I, I just can't include those. When you do the fact-checking about his constant claims of murderers coming over the border, and I've read your authoritative stuff on drugs coming over the borders, and it's quite clear that they mostly come through legal ports of entry, and I've also read your and other reporters talking about the false claim of so many terrorists coming over the border. He seems to have dropped that in recent weeks. But I just want to talk about, he's been trotting out these homeland security statistics about murderers coming over the border. And I did a lot of work on that. And it's very hard to know what the truth is because Texas seems to be the only state that actually chronicles the status of the people they charge with murder. So what do you say? What do you, what baseline do you use to judge whether he's being factual or unfactual when he talks about what seems to me the incredibly high rate of uh, homicides of people in this country illegally? Right. So the thing is that he is often relatively factual about this because he cites, he often cites ICE arrest data. So he'll say in the last two years, ICE arrested 4,000 people convicted or charged with homicide. And that's right, according to his statistics. It's the broader sort of general fear-mongering, like these people are going to, you know, ruin your communities and overrun the hospitals and all that stuff that I think is 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 dubious at best. But it's sort of so vague that I don't feel comfortable, you know, calling it, calling it true or false. When the president decries fact-checkers as fake news, does that hurt your cause or help it? It's hard to know exactly. I mean, I think there's this effect of uh, Trump causing people who might otherwise be 
skeptical of various institutions to rally around the institution. So I think you've seen that with the with the FBI, for example. You know, where you have liberals, uh, you know, standing up for the FBI. With even the mainstream media, I mean, a lot of uh, liberals, Democrats have had various complaints about the media. But when Trump attacks the media as the enemy of the people, I think a lot of citizens say, "Hold on, no, this this is an, an institution we value." So I think there there's probably to some extent that kind of effect with fact checking. But I think you know, in the eyes of of others, he is probably successfully undermining our our credibility, our legitimacy. So I think it's it's probably a, a mixed bag on the whole. Do you think that apart from Trump, there has been a blowback to the fact-checking industry or the fact-checking way of looking at the world from figures on the left, like AOC, who talked about it being more concerned with being precisely factually and semantically correct than being morally correct. I know you're fact-checking Trump and not fact-checking her, but is there, what are your thoughts on that critique that sometimes fact-checkers are too nitpicky if we're being morally correct? So that that was the first time I've heard that precise thing. I hear various criticisms of Fact checkers that the that that sort of moral correctness over literal correctness was was new to me. I think that you know someone has to be the nitpicker. Someone has to point out uh, has to distinguish you know literal truth from literal inaccuracy. And so I think from what I saw, AOC raised some interesting points about like who gets fact checked, how often, why. Those are questions I think we we all need to think about. And I think there are questions in general about. You know, is is AOC, you know, a fresh freshman uh, member of Congress? Is she getting disproportionate coverage, et cetera? But I don't. I I think that uh, someone has to point out the, the literal stuff. You know, even if we seem pedantic or obsessed with you know little discrepancies, someone has to get the literally correct information to people. So I don't. In you know, there may there are probably. I'm sure there are exceptions. I'm sure there are exceptions when we we mess up or we fact check the wrong thing, we get something wrong. But in general, I don't. I don't think we're too nitpicky. I think. I think that's our job. I get this a lot from the Trump side. And what happens when you fact check Trump is that people will tell you that in your pedanticness, in your in your nitpicking, you're you're missing a broader point underlying the falsehood. So so this is um I'm not getting the numbers here exactly right because I don't remember exactly what he said, but Trump will say, like, you know, there were say, I'm make, I'm making this number up, but he'll say there are a thousand homicides in Chicago last year, and that was a new record. And you'll say, no, no, uh, there were actually, you know, 600 homicides. I'm making this up also. There were 600 homicides, and that was actually down from the two years prior. And then I'll get this flood of emails and tweets saying, well, you don't care that there were 600 homicides in Chicago? You think that's okay, that all these African Americans are killing each other? That's what he's saying. And to me, it's like, well, if he wanted to say that, you know, violence is a problem, it's still too high, he could have said that. But instead, he gave an inaccurate number. So someone has to be the nitpicker and say that the, the number is wrong. In life, are you a literal-minded person? If someone <laughs> is telling a fun story at a party, are you more likely than the average person to say, okay, but that's not true? Uh, <laughs> these are interesting questions. Um, I I don't know if I am. I mean, I think I see context as important. So to me, you know, if someone is like, be, you know, BSing at a, at a party, I'm not going to jump in and be like, actually. Um, but when the president, you know, is, is, you know, adding $200 billion to a trade deficit, I think... That's different, even if it seems minor to a lot of people. Yeah, here's a test that I use. When it comes to fictionalized versions of real events, and this is this happens in film, we're all allowed some leeway. But for me, as I don't know how literal-minded I am when it comes to telling fun stories at a party or stand-up comedy, but if there's a film like The King's Speech, which gets a lot of its power from how factual or true it claims to be, and then it plays fast and loose with the truth, I get upset. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like that too. I, I go <laughs> immediately... 
you know, if, if I see a movie like based on a true story, the first thing I do right. when I go home is I Google like, you know, what was true and false in the King's speech. And if it, the more true it is, the more, the more pleased I am. So yeah, that's a, that's a good question. The last thing I want, or the last category I want to get to is differences between America and Canada is first let's talk cultural and then let's talk structural. Are there cultural differences that makes this phenomenon more likely to happen in America? I know that Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank was going to be the Donald Trump of Canada, and you did have your Robin Doug Ford. But are there cultural differences that you sense as making this more of a likely American phenomenon? So it's it's hard to say, and I I think you know when Canadians sort of scoff at the idea that you know a Trump could 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 rise in Canada, I think you know they should be more cautious. I think you know it anything could happen. I think there's some factors that are different. I mean, one of them is that we don't have the right-wing media ecosystem that exists in the U.S. There are some, like uh, the, Rebel, right. the Rebel, which is a you know, right-wing, I think, YouTube-based news, or I don't know what you'd call it, but it's a, a right-wing YouTube uh, service. But we don't have like a Fox News, a Breitbart, you know, we had a Sun TV that failed. And so so people are kind of stuck. Right, you had your, your Rupert Mur- Murdoch was Conrad Black, right. but he didn't get very far. Yeah. He owned a bunch of papers. But then also, aren't the alt-right guys, don't they trace back to Gavin McGinnis in Montreal and Vice? Yeah, so we, we have, you know, alt-right figures. We have white supremacists. We have uh, racist people. Uh, so we're, Canada's not immune, yes. not immune to problems. And we do have, you know, many of our media outlets are sort of uh, small C conservative so they're they're right leaning although not in not in a trumpist kind of way but so there are you know there are right wing institutions but we don't have this kind of alternative media uh, world where people can just completely tune out the mainstream media like they're kind of stuck with mainstream journalists i think you know a key to the the trump phenomenon was you know anti immigrants or racial animus or ethnic or religious animus against muslims hispanic whatever canada has more openness to diversity to immigration so i think that that component is is missing to some extent, but um, you know, Rob, like I, Toronto was a super liberal city, and federally and provincially, you know, it votes liberal, or when it gets mad at the liberals, it'll vote for the NDP, which is even further, like the Social Democratic Party, and and yet, you know, it elected. Rob Ford mayor because it, uh, a lot of people were angry with elites. Uh, they thought that, you know, the the wealthy and the the progressives were looking down on them or not paying attention to their to their, you know, bread and butter pocketbook concerns. And so I think, you know, when when you get these kinds of factors, unexpected things can happen. So I don't I don't think that we are immune even in even in Toronto, let alone Canada. Right. Uh, there, there's also a whole bunch of scholarship that says that as the majority ethnicity feels threatened and in America, white people are going to not be the majority, you get consequences like this. And that's just not happening in Canada. So that might be a big explanation, too. But what about what about laws? What about the what about Facebook or laws that govern the CBC, laws that govern, uh, I don't know if you have an equal time law in Canada, you know, what government policies might have allowed Trump here that would actually be preventing it in Canada? Huh, that's a that's an interesting question. I, I honestly don't know the answer. And maybe part of it is that I've been away for the last four years. So I'm, I, I don't think I'm well-versed enough to answer that question well. Yes, I uh, respect you declining to answer, right? As opposed to saying, well, some guy, everyone's saying that this is <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> this this, this uh, welder backstage told me yes. that there were laws, and then he was crying. Yes. Daniel Dale is the Washington bureau chief of the Toronto Star, and he is keeping, I believe, the most authoritative list of every lie that Trump has said as president. And... 
in the effort to become president. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. As a rule, I am not enthralled by theology stories. Well, I should be specific. Stories where the tension lies in rooting for the ongoing success of a religion. Not that I root against any religion or religion per se. I am irreligious because, just because they are all wrong. But I do believe in faith traditions. I do believe that could bring people together and create community and sponsor good youth basketball leagues and all that. So hearing the tenets of a religion, I always find that interesting actually. Okay? So like if someone explains to me what a religion believes and why they believe it. I'm almost always into it. This The Sunni-Shia split. Oh, you guys are crazy. Muhammad's son-in-law? Clearly the rightful heir, the first imam. You guys are off your gourds. You know, you got to follow the caliph. Hello, do we have to do the Karbala thing again? I find it all fascinating. And Martin Luther, and you get to like the fine differences between the Calvinists and the Zwinglianists. I think the Zwinglianists actually get it right on the issue of transubstantiation of the Eucharist. I mean, if it was really true, wouldn't that make us all cannibals? Anyway, I love a good transubstantiation of the Eucharist reference, especially as it pertains to the Zwinglianists. All of these stories for me are stories like what a religion believes. It's kind of in the realm of fiction, but, you know, interesting fiction. I don't want to insult you. I really don't. This is just what I find interesting and why I find it interesting. I, I like understanding what people believe. I like some nonfiction stories about religion, like what religion inspires some people to do. I like the Bible. Uh, I think it's uh, pretty poetic. I like uh, stories that explain why people act the way they act. And if the answer is religion, it's good to know that. But there are so many stories these days that essentially the tension is, will this religion survive? And I, for one, do not care because I always think, well, you only have yourselves to blame. Again, again, community, togetherness, the pastoral role, respect to all that. But all your religions, you're, they're all going to come tumbling down someday, especially if you put into the charter a lot of these rules. Brings me to Methodists and gay priests. This seems like an easy one to me. Not a Methodist, and neither are devout, respected, longtime, self-identified Methodists who happen to be gay. Okay, I want to be fair. What I said wasn't totally true. Methodists aren't excommunicating anyone. They're not big excommunicators, not throwing anyone out. They're just not necessarily letting all the people into middle management. The United Methodist Church voted on Tuesday to strengthen its ban on same-sex marriage in LGBT clergy. It's a move likely to split America's second largest Protestant denomination and alienate its followers who had pushed for reform. The vote came after three days of debate at the church's general conference in St. Louis, Missouri. Delegates from around the world voted to maintain the church's existing policy, stating that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Ooh, could be a split, could be a, yeah, a schism. Headline, Springfield News, United Methodists fear split in the church over LGBTQ vote. Fort Worth Telegraph, United Methodists face vote on LGBTQ issues. Will it rip the church apart? I don't know if it will, but it will certainly imperil the brand identity of the United Methodists, won't it? 
So you got the one church plan, which will allow annual conferences to ordain LGBTQ pastors, but they wouldn't be forced to. An extra bishop would be made available if the assigned bishop of the conference were to be uncomfortable with the ordination or if you get your pawn into the other side's final row. The traditional plan would strengthen language in the Book of Discipline to enforce current prohibitions on same-sex marriage. It would also allow conferences and individual churches to leave the denomination. Are you hooked? Are you entertained? Because I'm sure not. I know this has upset a lot of people. I know this has riven families. I I do get the human stakes. But at its base, we have a group of believers with at least one really, really bad belief, and it's causing them distress. And I am just not invested. I am also not in vestments, which is similar to Theodore McCarrick, who was defrocked. Guy was once frocked. He is no more frocked. I love the term defrocked. I always think it was a little bit of a weird punishment for sexual impropriety. Okay, we're defrocking you. Little nakedness. We'll sort all of this out. So what's going on here with the Catholics, which is a long, noble, but also quite ignoble tradition? It's being upended because it, it has bad beliefs. And those bad beliefs inevitably lead to bad consequences. You get what you pay for and you get what you pray for. And praying out the gay is what put the Catholics in this position plus a little celibacy too. I mean, demonizing gay people, literally demonizing. Wait, do I mean literally demonizing? I suppose demonizing means to compare someone to a demon. So it wasn't that, but it was literally saying, we're going to throw you to the demons, your soul upon death. So if weatherizing means to coat with a coating to protect from the weather, I suppose demonizing can mean throwing someone to the demons. So yeah, they've demonized a natural part of life or as the Jesuits would say, God's plan. And that makes no sense. When you pathologize the natural, you naturally get pathologies. And of course, the priesthood attracts a disproportionate number of suppressed and in denial gay men. Look, let me explain it this way. Here's why telling people that being gay is wrong and having a priesthood that enforces celibacy is a recipe for having a disproportionate number of gay men in the priesthood. Let's say there was a religion which thought that having red hair was immoral. You can't have red hair. But they also had a priesthood where everyone shaved their heads bald twice a day. You couldn't tell anyone's hair color. Don't you think a lot of the true believers who were redheads would join the priesthood? But then when the day came when they let everyone's hair grow out, I think you'd find a lot of gingers in the group. Just as a story, however, I mean, it's interesting, and I suppose it's a tale of uh, getting what you deserve or a comeuppance or a reckoning, but I don't find it to be dramatic or a compelling story because when the cause of tumult is so clear and the solution is so obvious, you have just taken off the table two essential questions in drama. Drama needs to have at least one of these questions at play. Either, how can we solve this? Or what's going on? What explains this? We know exactly what explains it. We know exactly what can solve it. Therefore, not much drama. With the Catholics and the Methodists and the oh-so-tough moral dilemmas, which is to say, your backwardsness, you bore me. Maybe the Zwinglianists have something that's a little bit more compelling. (laughs) 
And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader have been working for me a combined three years, and they have yet to reach a cumulative 30 lies, unless you count every day when they say, good to see you, Mike. T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast. She will not shop in any grocery store that does not have a cat. She brings her own cat to the Whole Foods and accepts thanks from all the other customers. The gist, I just want to bet that I could do a Stormy segment and not mention Daniel's. Wait, I just lost the bet. Oom Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.